0: Hi, this is Farah Feit, one of the co hosts of Is It Legal Too. As a compassionate caution, we wanted to let you know that some of the cases discussed in this episode involve sexual assault and violence.
1: Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. Right.
0: All right.
1: Is It Legal Too, a regular look at the legal system and you, special production of Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
0: And I'm Farrah Feit.
1: You know, if you want to know if somebody living down the street from you ever convicted, was convicted of a crime, you really can't find that out, except if they were convicted of a particular crime. And the state maintains a registry of people convicted of those crimes. Today, we're going to talk about that registry, what's in it, what's not in it, how people get on it, how people, if possible, ever get off of it, and what it all means to you in who you live next to, and really whether it makes any difference. So, we have a special guest, Farrah.
0: That's right, Bob. Here to talk with us today about Missouri's sex offender registry is Matt Radefeld. He is a criminal defense attorney with more than 20 years of experience, and he is a partner at the firm of Frank, Yangle, and Radefeld in St. Louis. In addition to his experience in the courtroom and representing clients, he's also a prolific speaker on this. He educates other lawyers when it comes to criminal defense law and the sex offender registry, and we appreciate his service in that regard um, to other Missouri lawyers through the Missouri Bar. So thank you for joining us today, Matt.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. We
1: haven't always had a sex offender registry in the state of Missouri. When when did the sex offender registry start to become an issue, and why Why did we start to compile it, Matt? Do you know the history of it?
3: Yeah,
2: I do. So back in 1995 was the first time that the state of Missouri had an organized sex offender registry. Um, and at that time, it was a very small amount of offenses that were required to register at that time, and it was the most severe sex offenses were required to have to register. And then it kind of... For the first five years from 1995 to 2000, it it really changed, and you could tell that just it was more charges, more cases, more uh, offenses were added to the registry. And then there was a real dramatic change probably – I think it was right around 2002 where the legislatures in Missouri said that misdemeanors were also required to register. And then in 2008, the federal registry, what we call SORNA, was passed, and Missouri really didn't do too much in regard to SORNA at that point in time until right at 2009 where there was a Missouri Supreme Court decision in Dovey Keithley that said that if you've ever had to register under federal law, then you're required to register in the state of Missouri for life. And so that's when all of a sudden we saw a big uptick in the amount of cases that were going in front of the courts. There, there was a more stringent um, uh, system of who was being required to register um, and it, it just it kind of brought us to where we are today.
0: Is it surprising that the number of uh, those who are on the sex offender, offender registry in Missouri today is at more than 23,000 people?
2: When you just look at that number, I had never really actually seen that number written down before. And I think that that's a, a staggering amount. Um, and I think the problem that you're going to have is that when you begin to see so many people on the registry that I think it's going to start losing its effect as to what is the purpose of the registry.
1: The purpose of the registry being?
2: The purpose of the registry is actually for public safety purposes. Yeah. Uh, it's a system uh, for monitoring and uh, tracking Sex offenders uh, following their release, and that's basically what it kind of is, is the release back into the community to inform people, as you had stated earlier, as to who are they living next to. Who is coming to, you know, fix their washer and dryer? I mean, who are these people that, you know, and I'm using air quotes when I say this, you know, they need to be worried about?
1: Why, why do we worry about these people when we don't worry about living next door to somebody who committed fraud? Or, or who stuck up a bank, or or who was convicted of manslaughter. Why are why are we more concerned about these people?
2: And I think you're going to see a lot of different uh, different opinions as to the recidivism rate of individuals who are sex offenders. Uh, on one side of the on the coin, you're going to, you're going to see that. Well, there's statistics that say that individuals who have committed this type of offense are not likely uh, to reoffend, and then you're going to have people more on the right side, uh, and the prosecutorial-minded side, that say no. There's staggering statistics that say these individuals are the ones who are more likely to reoffend, so therefore we need to keep an eye on them. Now,
1: is that why we have a special unit over in Farmington, where people who are convicted sex offenders have completed their sentence, but the state can then keep them in custody? After their sentence is completed,
2: yes, that's all. That's called the civil commitment, yeah. um, and and that's a process in itself. That is, uh, is it, it takes a, a jury trial uh, in order to civilly commit a person. Um, then the big question then becomes if they're civilly committed here in Missouri because some states do it differently, that if you're civilly committed uh, in Missouri, then it's thought to be lifetime incarceration. And I think it's a very few amount of people who have ever made it through the actual steps necessary in which to ever be released if you're civilly committed.
1: Is, has there been a constitutional challenge to that concept at all?
2: You know, I'm, I am. I haven't heard of one. I I have not heard of one, so I can't speak on one, and I and I am not familiar with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to ask you about what you believe the average Missouri citizen should know about the sex offender registry. You've talked a little bit about the purpose and the intent behind it, um, because of the concern of reoffending. But um, you know, average citizen going through their daily life, what should they know about it? And how should they use it or should they use it?
2: So the website that is available to the public uh, is on the Missouri State Highway Patrol website. Um, when you go to that that website, it's specifically right away. Uh, there's a do I agree or disagree um, choice down at the bottom because they have a very long paragraph that says that this sex offender registry cannot be used to harass individuals who are on the registry. It, it's not meant to... Um, be used in any improper way because unfortunately we have I have a lot of people call me who say I have my neighbor who is posting up signs all across my neighborhood saying you know this guy's a pedophile watch out um, so the average citizen should know that that website's available but the average citizen should also know that they it can't be misused but on that particular website it's going to have what the offender's name is where they reside. Um, where they work, um, and what their past offenses are Um, because the laws have kind of changed throughout the years. Maybe it meant one thing in one year, and it means something else in a different year. Now, um, because Missouri went to a tier system that it will tell you what tier they're in, and it's more or less, I guess, supposed to give you an idea of how serious of an offender that person is. It will tell you whether or not they are compliant or noncompliant, There may be concerns if a person is noncompliant that they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing as far as updating their information. And so that may be a a problem that an average citizen may want to know that that individual is not compliant. But what it also has in this website are the vehicles they're driving. It will have a picture of of an individual. Um, And I don't believe it. it's on the registry, but it is something that you have to register are your online identifiers. But I don't believe that is on the particular Missouri State Highway Patrol. Uh, but that is something that. I don't know if it's possible if an average citizen were to call up the chief local law enforcement official who's in charge of the registry and say, look, I see that this guy is uh, you know, my neighbor and he's a tier three and I see him walking around the neighborhood. Um, is there any way I can obtain his, his online identifying information so I can be sure that my kids are not you know, conversing online uh, with this individual? I don't know if, if that information is protected, but I don't believe the online identifiers are on the website.
0: So the online identifiers, you're talking about someone's social media handles, their names on any array of social media platforms that we have today.
2: That is correct. And so when a person goes in to register, there's a a very lengthy packet now that they have to fill out. And there's a whole page dedicated to online identifiers. And oftentimes, you know, uh, us older people, we have Facebook. Um, And so – but the younger people do not. The Instagram, the uh, Snapchat, the, you know – Whatever, whatever else, yeah, it is, whatever emerging network <laughs> yeah, is exactly coming up right. today.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but on Facebook, a lot of times we'll just have what our names are, you know, Matt Radfeld, Here's my Facebook page. Um, and so I have had individuals before who have forgotten or just didn't put down their Facebook page, which is simply their name, John Smith. That's my Facebook page. And then they can be charged with a crime for failure to register because they just didn't put down in the online identifiers, John Smith. Facebook. That's it. Um, But because the problem that you have and the reason why that I believe that is having to be maintained and looked at is because you will have somebody who's John Smith and they'll put out there, you know, uh, Big J, you know, whatever they want to put as as their handle on, on Facebook. And so. The individuals who are in charge of monitoring that that registry, you know, oftentimes they'll they'll look, they'll pull out somebody's packet and say, "Well, I'm going to go to Facebook right now. I'm going to see John Smith." Okay, well, that's John Smith. That's fine. But then sometimes they'll find out from someone else. You know, a lot of times it's a tip or whatever that somebody's using a different handle, and they go there and they go, "Oh yeah, there's this picture right there." How do I know? Because I went to the Missouri State Highway Patrol. I looked at his picture. That's them. He didn't list that, um, and so therefore he failed to register, and that that is a felony.
1: The sex offender registry also the sex offender laws also limit the where people can go who are on this list. You can't go to schoolyards or be within so many yards, hundred yards of a schoolyard, things like that. Uh, you can't uh, you can't give out treats on Halloween, um, and so people in the neighborhood know don't go to this house because there's a sex offender there. Is is, is this kind of a I, a persecution beyond beyond normal limits in terms of jail time and, and uh, debts to society or is this such a, such an odious criminal offense that we need to set people apart this way?
2: I think that a lot of times the, you know, the thousand feet rule as far mm-hmm. as residing within a thousand feet of a school as, as the crow flies or being or loitering uh, within 500 feet of a school or a park, um, which, you know, is defined as having playground equipment, um, is, I think, was a very popular topic for legislatures to campaign on. Um, I've had in, in St. Louis, there are a lot of private schools, uh, a lot of parochial schools. And so therefore, the component of not being able to be within a thousand or without 500 feet of a school, but not residing within a thousand feet, if you have children who go to school there, it says that if you go and you get permission from the, you know either the principal of a private school or the superintendent of a school district, that then you will be allowed to go to certain functions that are pertaining to your own child. Um, but, but short of that, um, you know, I've, I've represented individuals who were found to be fi- loitering within 500 feet of a school who pulled into a, uh, a parking lot just because they wanted to finish eating their McDonald's cheeseburger as they were doing their construction job down the street. And lo and behold, that they didn't know at the back side of, of the behind the building that they pulled into is a playground with playground equipment, and so therefore they were arrested for loitering, and then you got to kind of have to go to, you know, did they knowingly do that? Um, So I think a lot of situations like that um, do show the severe nature of that type of law, Um, but unfortunately you read about and you hear about individuals who are sitting in a car across the street from a public swimming pool with binoculars staring at kids. Mm -hmm. So it it, kind of goes both ways.
0: Bob mentioned several of those limitations, but could you kind of give us a a list so that the listener can understand what are some of the limitations of where someone in the sex offender registry can be and who they can interact with?
2: Sure. Um, So as far as the interaction, we get calls about that all the time as to, well, can I go to a family function and hang out with my uh, uncle's, you know, children on the other side of the family. And we, yes, I mean, there's nothing that would prevent a person on the sex offender registry from attending a family function, talking to children or nothing like that. It, the only ones that are actually delineated, to my knowledge, is you can't be a coach or a trainer or a manager for any sort of uh, a child athletic team. Um, the Halloween uh, restrictions that Bob talked about uh, very finely defined as far as like what you can and cannot do having your lights off at a certain time putting a sign up and and what needs to be done um, and then the main limitations that are, are codified in, in our laws are you know not residing within a thousand feet of a school uh, or daycare Um not loitering within 500 feet of a school or a park, as I said, and to my knowledge, as I, I sit here, I uh, oh, there's also uh, museums. You know, you can't loiter around museums. All within that 500 feet of a park, that I was saying. There's also several commas and other places that are listed uh, that you can't go to. Uh, one of the ones that have that I've seen come up lately. Is something like a, an aviation museum okay? Is an aviation museum is that specifically geared towards children, um, much like you know the the, the children's museum or, or the um, you know the the magic house, you know, or something like? That. Is that different? Well, then it becomes the argument. Well, we bring in busloads of kids to this museum, you know, every day for for field trips. But then you have to look at what the purpose of the museum is. So these are just finer points that may come up sometimes if a. A law enforcement official decides to, you know, be a little bit more interactive than some and say, you know what, we think that you committed a criminal offense and we're going to charge you accordingly. And now a defense attorney has to come in and try to say, you know, no, that's not a criminal offense.
4: How
1: hard is it to defend?
2: Uh, the, the failure to register? Well, yeah,
1: yeah that, and, and the other things we've been talking about, when people get picked up for having that hamburger in the parking lot, how hard is that to go into court and defend the practicality? The practice, the real world.
2: Sure, exactly, and that's a great question because I think that every single jurisdiction handles it differently. I think you're going to find some jurisdictions um, that that the smaller jurisdictions where the judges are elected and you know not part of the Missouri court plan that. Um, there's just a different vibe there, and the prosecutor's office tend to be a little bit more uh, strict with how they um, handle those cases. And I will I will say without, without naming the jurisdiction, but it's thought to be one of the more, um, more strict jurisdictions on, on the east side of, of Missouri where I've actually been impressed on how they've handled these cases where they're willing to do uh, diversion programs or, or, or a deferred prosecution program where they say, all right, look, here's what I'm going to do. We we'll, we'll consider that to be a one-off and he made a mistake and he didn't know it. so I'm going to put him, on, put him on a deferred prosecution. But within the next 12 months, if he gets caught again in another park, we're going to have to readdress what happened before and you're going to waive the the speedy you know not speedy trial, but the statute of limitations on that and uh, you know if they keep doing it, then we're going to see a pattern then and, and that's going to be a problem.
1: Is there a statute of limitations on sex crimes?
2: Um it depends on, on the sex crime. There are certain sex crimes that they abolish the statute of limitations and there's still there's some sex crimes that say that it's ten years once the person has reached the age of eighteen. Um, so again, it just depends on, on what that crime is.
1: This sounds like a good time for a segment we call legal ease with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legal ease. That means we asked Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legal ease.
4: When it comes to protecting potential victims from sex offenders, especially children, there are many who feel that we cannot be too careful. But really, can we? There are two categories that we should consider separately. The first is the sex offender registry, which requires convicted sex offenders to register with the county sheriff of their residence for the rest of their lives. A few will be released from this requirement, but not many because the law covers a wide range of offenses It may surprise you to know that some do not even involve sexual activity i know a woman who many years ago returned to missouri in a misguided effort to save a grandchild whose mother quite young and living a lifestyle that included major drugs this woman the child's grandmother aided by another of her children went to the house where the grandchild was living an infant and snatched her the grandmother was arrested a pistol was found in the glove compartment of her car unrelated to this offense and she was charged with kidnapping and other offenses. After trial, she was sentenced to 15 or 20 years or so in prison and served most of them. After being released and establishing residency in Missouri, she was informed that she had to register as a sex offender. But, she asked, my offense had nothing to do with sex. The probation officer who was required to check on her monthly agreed. But the law is the law. It did not start with the Missouri General Assembly for once, but with a federal statute that requires states to enact very broad provisions for registering sex offenders. The law has an exception where a parent is charged with kidnapping her own child. That is not considered a sex offense, but a grandmother is a sex offender. There is an element of sex offense in many, perhaps most, child kidnappings, but not all. So we will waste our resources keeping track of people who pose no threat to children, generally. In fact, in this grandmother's case, her other daughters entrust her to babysit for their children. And I should add that this dangerous grandmother is currently confined to a wheelchair. An agent of the state, however, checks on her regularly. Your tax dollars at work. Then there's Halloween, the night that children dress up in costumes and come begging for treats. In many parts of Missouri, trick-or-treaters are asked to tell a joke in order to get a treat. Here's a joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? A sex predator. A sex predator who? Oh, this is actually not a joke. The Missouri legislature passed a law in 2008 that forbids people on the sex offender registry from being near children on Halloween and handing out candy. In fact, these offenders, former offenders actually, who have completed their sentences are required to put up a sign on Halloween that says, there's no candy here. So, take the case of Thomas Sanderson, recently reported in the St. Louis Press. Sanderson was charged in 2006 with inappropriately touching a 16-year-old family friend. He was charged with second-degree statutory sodomy, convicted and sentenced to two years in prison after his conviction. Sanderson has always denied the charge. In 2008, a couple years later, Missouri lawmakers passed a bill requiring sex offenders to avoid contact with children on Halloween. Remain inside the house, turn off all the outside lights, and post a sign. It says no candy. Sanderson asked St. Louis County Police, where he resides, if he was subject to the law, but he was informed that the law was passed after his conviction, and so it did not apply to him. So he began having Halloween parties for the next decade or so, entertaining as many as 100 people, and in one case, firemen from Hazelwood showed up with a fire truck and handed out candy at his house. He was charged with violating the Halloween law, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor, and now has brought suit so that he can return to his Halloween activities. An earlier Missouri decision did not apply this law to people who were convicted before the law was passed, but the state's court's position changed under the command of, I suppose, federal statutes. Sanderson's suit asserts that there is no evidence or study that says sex offenders are dangerous at Halloween. No matter. If you're convicted of such a crime, you will be presumed dangerous and forever be restricted in where you can live and where you can fully participate in polite society, such as Halloween. These kinds of provisions, in reality, continue the punishment well after the offender has served his time and paid his debt to society. When it comes to that, let me tell you about my visit some 15 years ago to tour the sex offender prison in Farmington, Missouri. My lock and I were given a guided tour by the warden, who was a very experienced corrections officer, and in his long career he had been an officer and a warden at several facilities. The sex offender prison was the best, he told us, The inmates were generally respectful and not prone to violent acts. As we walked across the prison's yard, he pointed us to a building just outside the prison, a building that looked like an old hospital, which I think it was, sort of. He said, these guys have all served their punishment, and they are in a facility for treatment that will, in most instances, keep them locked up for the rest of their lives. It was and is the Department of Mental Health facility for those who after completing their prison sentences for sex offenders, are subject to civil commitment proceedings because they are thought to be sexually violent predators. They have a path to get out, but few ever do. They have a right to a jury trial, but most jurors are going to say, wow, a sex offender? I don't think so. So I asked the psychologist at the sex offender prison, who was in charge of referring these men, how many sex offenders get referred to civil commitment? About 5%, the psychologist said. The record of each of those referred inmates is reviewed by a committee of professionals who decide whether the sex offender should be referred for civil commitment as a sexually violent predator. But even if the professional's committee says, no, he's not, the attorney general can start a case for civil commitment without the committee's approval, sometimes even seeking expert testimony from out-of-state experts. This leads me to think of an old saying, and I'm going to paraphrase here, we judge a society not by how it treats its best people, but by how it treats its worst. It's fairly easy to justify these laws if you don't think too hard or dig too deeply. When it comes to children, especially, you can always say you cannot be too careful. But is that a real answer? Like a lot of us, I don't know the answers either. But we do have a constitution, and we do have to think about whether or not these offenses, and they are awful, justify the lifetime of of sanction that we impose on people, even when they do at some point show that they're able to control their impulses. So I think we have to think about how we handle these cases and how our society deals with people who are doing these horrible things and whether we are treating them and us and their families appropriately. So that's something to think about. This is Mike Wolf saying, we don't have all the answers. Well, we sure have to ask the right questions.
1: Legal ease.
0: You mentioned a packet that when someone has been convicted of a crime that requires them to register that they have to complete, what uh, I know that you highlighted some of the things that are in that packet. Um, is that a pretty cumbersome process? and then does is the responsibility on the individual to constantly update information within that packet?
2: So I think that process has actually – I think a lot of the jurisdictions have done a very good job of finding the right mentality of the officer who is handling those registry situations Um, when a person has to come in. And and, and, and not everybody who goes to – uh, who gets charged with a sex offense goes to prison. You know we know that. Sometimes you can still get a suspended imposition of sentence, which is a no conviction. So you're not convicted, but yet you still have to go register as a as a sex offender, because under the sex offender laws, they use the term adjudicated versus convicted or pled guilty. They just use adjudicated. So if a person's put on probation for a sex offense, um, then the judge will say, as as condition your probation, you're going to walk right down the street you know and you are going to go register today even though you have you know 3 business days to do it you know you are going to go down there now and go do it and so when they go in there the individual who's running the registry office the police officer he says okay here's your packet go ahead and sit down and fill out all this information and you say okay great if a person went to prison and then right before they're about ready to be released, they get told that all right, you know, you are required, and they get a piece of paper they're required to sign that says you acknowledge that your sex offender obligations, and as soon as you leave here, you are going to go register within three, you know, business days to go do it. Or, and this gets a little bit more tricky if a person lives out of state, or if they are coming from out of state. And Illinois is a tricky one because their registration laws are, are different than Missouri laws. And they actually are very firm that if you only are required to register for 10 years, on that 10th year, you're off. But then you're like, okay, this is great. Well, now I'm going to go moved over to Missouri. But the Missouri's laws say that, well, if you've ever had to register in another state, then you're going to have to register here in, in Missouri. Um, unless you can get something to show that you are, you are no longer required to register in Illinois. But again, there's been some recent changes in case law that's changed that whole thing that I'm sure we're we're probably going to talk about here momentarily. Um, But a person who comes from out of state and and then finds themselves having to register in the state of Missouri, it's all this, they, all all three of those situations when they show up at that registry office are going to get that packet that I said before, and the officer is going to say, you need to fill this out. With your name, your address, uh, where you work, who you work for, your online identifiers—they're going to take your picture, um, what car you're driving—you know, any of that ty- that type of information. So I don't think it, it's necessarily a very difficult process to do, um, but you just got to make sure that you fill out that that form completely and fully because if you don't. That's what you're going to find in your discovery when you get from the prosecutor as to how you failed to register, and that and that's what they use to determine whether or not you have uh, uh, failed to fill out the proper information.
1: You mentioned a tiered system early on. Define the tiered system. What's in tier one, two, three, so on?
2: Sure. And so, uh, to talk to briefly about how the lo- the mm-hmm. law has changed. Just mm-hmm. briefly before before I get into that. Prior to 2018. It was just simply a situation where under the particular statute of 589.400, the revised statutes of Missouri, it says that if you have to register, you got to register for life in Missouri. It's just – that that's just how it was, and there was a a big, long list of of those offenses that required registration. Um, And then in 2018, they started looking at – all right – There has to be a system like the federal system because the 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 federal system since 2006 was when I think the law was first passed. But um, they have a tier one, a tier two, and a a tier three. But Missouri, for a long time, was looking at all right. Well, do we go to an assessment process? You know, do we have a counselor determine that you know what you have done, what's necessary? I don't think you're a danger to the community anymore. So therefore, I'm going to say to the court that you should get off the registry. Well, then it became a question of who's going to pay for that. You know, who's going to pay for this individual to be able to assess an individual? So they looked at it, and and I really think that the Missouri State Legislature worked. I know they worked extremely hard on trying to get that done, Um, and they got it done. There was just one little component that we'll talk about in a minute that kind of threw it for an upheaval, and we find ourselves where we are today. But, anyways, the tier system under Missouri law, it's thought to be, you know. The less the less severe offenses are going to be found under a tier one, uh, the mid-range offenses are going to be found under a tier two, and then the more serious are going to be the tier threes. They're the ones that stick around after they're completing the prison term. Many exactly, of them, yeah. exactly right. So yeah. those
0: are very like violent offenses that have occurred. The more most se- likely,
2: more severe, um, the very young victim. Um, but the one problem of the tier threes is that since the Missouri law has changed, and even just the names of the offenses have changed through the years, that they can't put in everything you know under the particular statute of all the Tier 1s, of all the Tier 2s. So what they did is they just threw the throwback of if it's not listed here in a Tier 1 or a Tier 2, then we're just going to throw it into the Tier 3. And if you look at all the Tier 3s, and I actually went and argued in front of the Missouri Court of Appeals in the Western District on this particular issue – Where if you look at the federal tier system, the Missouri system is supposed to mirror that more or less, and there's actually components part in in that statute when it talks about a tier one, a tier two, a tier three, that if it's substantially similar to tier one, it comes here. It's substantially similar to tier, tier two, it's here, tier three, so on and so forth. But under the tier one under federal, if it's a misdemeanor, it's under tier one, period. There's no way that a misdemeanor can be a tier two or a tier three under the federal law. And if you look at all the offenses under a Tier 3, other than that catch-all provision, they're all felony offenses as well. There is one misdemeanor offense that's listed under the Tier 3, but it's a misdemeanor in theory, but then it gets kind of ratcheted up to a felony if a person has a prior sex offense. And it's dealing with a prostitution type issue, a, a patronizing prostitution. That's the only misdemeanor that that's in there. Well, I had a case where it was – a misdemeanor case, you know, sexual misconduct that, you know, that particular offense um, should have been a tier one. And, and, And the court of appeals said, but it's not listed under a tier one or a tier two. And so therefore this catch all, we have to follow what the legislature says. And so therefore that catch all is a tier three. So it was a clear misdemeanor that should have been a tier one, but because that catch all is there, it's saying it's a tier three. And so as far as a person who is a Tier 1 is required to register for 15 years, but unless there's a clean record reduction that we call it, and so it knocks it down to a 10-year. And then a Tier 2 is 25 years, and then the Tier 3, which is the most severe, is, is to, for life.
1: Patronizing prostitution. Mm-hmm. The, per- the patron is the one who registers? That is correct. The prostitute doesn't.
2: That is correct. Um, and so there's a promoting prostitution. Patronite prostitution but there to my knowledge uh, I would have to you know it's a very long section I don't believe prostitution in itself is listed as a sex event
1: so a prostitute is not committing a sex
2: crime according to this particular statute I don't believe it's in there so that is correct
0: you were just highlighting some of the differences between the federal registry and the state registry although it sounds like the state is designed to somewhat mimic the federal. Are there other major differences beyond the catch-all provision in the state registry that you think of our particular note?
2: Yeah, so like I said, under the federal, the Tier 1, it has felonies in there as well, um, but misdemeanors are are listed under there. Um, The Tier 2... Is interesting under federal because it requires you to look at other f- federal offenses, um, aggravated sexual abuse, sexual abuse, uh, sexual assault, aggravated. I mean, there's so there's there's different things that it, that it looks at, and it also looks at at an age component. So it, it appears on its face that under the federal they have less offenses listed because there's just lesser. Sex offenses listed under federal law. Um, the bigger ones being, you know, the crossing state lines to have, you know, sexual relations with a minor or assisting in that uh, in any way. And you're going to find yourself in a tier three under federal when you're doing that. But one that comes up a lot, especially in the eastern and western districts of, of Missouri, are the possession and distribution and the receiving of child pornography. That's a big one. So having a Possession of child pornography um, is a tier one offense. Um, receiving and distributing child pornography, um, which is an interesting thing when you're on the computer, because if you're doing file sharing and which is very popular peer to peer, that some jurisdictions consider that to be distributing. Therefore, you're going to find yourself under a, a tier two uh, component. Um, and then the other it's brought up in, now in, in the state as well in the federal is that they have uh, exemptions. Uh, what is not deemed to be a sex offense, and that's how the federal law defines it, is this is not a sex offense if it was consensual it, um, sex between adults or if there was consensual uh, sexual conduct between an individual who is older than 13 years old and not and then the other person is not more than four years older than they are
0: and so when you say four years, do they look at the birthdays and kind of do the math to see what the difference is
2: yeah um, what's interesting is that when I was initially working on those cases, we looked at four years as being fourteen or four years being four years You're fifteen plus four years nineteen okay, we're good to go they're they're not more than four years. Um, but then I started having some cases in Missouri um, where the attorney general's office or the prosecutors or whomever was arguing against the removal um, case that, that we'd be filing. That they said, no, you have to take 365 days, multiply that times four, you get your number. And if you look at the birth dates of, of one person and the birth dates of the other, and if it exceeds that four times 365 days, then sorry, um, then that is more than four years.
0: Now, does that differ significantly? Because I know we've uh, talked in other episodes here in Missouri that uh, you legally cannot consent. Um, You know, even if you're dating someone, you know, you're 18, they're uh, 17 or younger, that state law says that they cannot consent legally. Uh, to have consensual sex. So it sounds like there's an exception in the federal rule there, but maybe not in the state.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting that the federal uses that terminology and doesn't really go any further than that um, because, you know, technically a a child cannot consent. Um, But the state of Missouri, what they have used and what we are calling the exemption statutes within 589.400 is that force was not an element. Um, So so you'll have some sex offenses that say an individual was coerced. Um, But in Missouri, we look at, okay, is there force? Um, And so therefore that is going to add to a component of of without their consent. Um, And so I have actually – I just argued in front of the Eastern – Division of the Court of Appeals of Missouri on an issue very similar on a matter that I had in in St. Louis County where it was an issue as to whether or not it was, um, you know, uh, inappropriate pictures were taken um, of an individual who was a minor by another minor who just so happens to reach that age of, of 18, but they were in a relationship um, and so the individual was not charged with pornography, which technically under the statutes it could be a pornography, but it was just more or less a, a sexual exploitation of a, of a minor scenario and whether or not that was done without force. And that's what the judge had to determine in St. Louis County.
1: Is there, it sounds like you're saying we, there, there needs to be some discretion applied here because we, we're talking about human beings is there is there discretion built into our laws is there is there wiggle room in our laws?
2: So I think that um when it comes to just the charge of mm-hmm. of a sex offense mm-hmm. um I think there is tremendous discretion by the prosecutor as far as what they want to do as far as the charging and and some prosecutors' offices do this differently. some follow the adage of. I'll charge high with the understanding that when we negotiate, we'll come back down low. There's some prosecutors' offices that say, "I think this is more appropriate. I really don't think this guy is a danger, and so therefore I'm going to do this." Well, even though they don't think they're a danger, they're still setting them up. I, I shouldn't say that term, but they're more or less putting them in a situation where if they plead guilty and even get an SIS, they're going to have to register as a sex offender. And so, therefore, I don't believe there's any discretion whatsoever. That to figure out what tiers a person is in, um, you know, sometimes we'll have people call and be like, hey, you know, I'm a tier two. Is there any way I can file, you know, something with the court to get me knocked down to a tier one? And you could go to a judge and and, and say, hey, look, judge, you know, they're really not that bad of a person. This is what happened. This is the situation. Can you please knock them down from a tier, tier two to a tier one? Absolutely not. They can't do it because the statute's very clear that if you play guilty to this offense, This is the offense that you have to register under as far as tier. Now, the discretion, I I think, gets into kind of like the scenario that I just described where the judge had the ability to be able to hear evidence and determine whether or not it truly does fall in the exemption statute because was there force really involved? Was there a threat of force really involved here? And luckily the judge found that, no, there was not, and the court of appeals upheld that
1: bargaining head into the discussion very much at the, from the prosecution level?
2: On sex cases in general? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would probably say that 95% of sex offenses are, are, are going to be negotiated in some way, but they also, I think, are in that category of cases that are finding themselves to be tried more so than most cases. I mean... In St. Louis County, in St. Louis City, you aren't going to see a lot of drug cases being tried. You know, I should probably say in St. Louis County, you aren't going to see a lot of drug cases being tried. The cases that you're going to be seeing tried are your very violent felonies, your assault firsts, your murders, and then bar none, the sex offenders. So the prosecutors who are in the, sense of the sex offense unit in St. Louis County, I would probably say they're having four to five times more trials than – Any other, you know, uh, attorneys in the prosecutor's office on other trial teams doing different kind of cases.
0: The U.S. Constitution guarantees someone the right who's been alleged or charged with a crime to face their accuser. Um, I have to imagine that in sexual assault uh, type cases that that could be something that's quite difficult um, for both the, the victim, but also just everyone involved. Um, does that play a role in, you know, the ability or willingness of a victim to come forward and to speak publicly about what, what occurred?
2: Absolutely. Um, so I've actually, um, I was in the military for 17 years. And so when I was in the JAG Corps in the army, I would uh, prosecute uh, sex offenses. And, um, so I've been on all sides of it. I've been, uh, I've worked in a police department before and I've seen the victims firsthand uh, on that level. Uh, I've seen, prosec- you know, on the prosecutorial level, what it's like to deal with the victims and how the victim's mentality changes throughout the duration of the course from being cooperative then not being cooperative when they kind of get back under, you know, wanting to be with their significant other or, or somebody, you know, that, that, they had a relationship with that caused them to be you know, sexually assaulted or, or in some way. But as a prosecutor, you look at it and you you don't want to re-victimize the victim. Um, so I think a lot of prosecutors are very cognizant of that um, when it comes up to doing some sort of plea bargaining uh, situation. You know, does this victim absolutely not want to go up on that stand and, and rehash what it is that happened to them on the absolute worst day of their life? Um, and there are some situations where, as a prosecutor, you have to say, "Look, I understand that you don't want to go do this, but you have to think about that other person that he could do that too as well, um, and you know, do what you can." And and unfortunately, sometimes we find ourselves in 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 child sex abuse cases uh, where I think they have developed a very good system that's difficult to defend against as a criminal defense attorney where they have the child go into the Child Advocacy Center and they talk about you know, the abuse that happened to them. So it's recorded. So you can avoid having multiple people interview that child and could potentially taint that interview. Um, and so they have that. But the child still is going to have to come into court in front of their accuser and say what happened. And in the federal system, they will – they're very big on allowing you know individuals be in one courtroom and then the accuser be in another, and they'll have a closed-circuit TV right there. Um, I've seen that more in federal courts than I have ever have seen in, in, in the state court. I don't think I've ever had that. I've had, I've had over 115 jury trials, and I've never in state court have had the closed-circuit TV of the victim in there. It's always been in person and in front of the defendant.
1: I guess uh, we've kind of touched on this earlier, but we get into the Romeo and Juliet type of thing. Uh, two kids, neither of whom, they're both minors, and they're fooling around in the backseat of a car. The cop rolls up, and the 16-year-old gets hauled out and taken to jail and charged with something. The 15-year-old girlfriend, who says, I'm not a victim, do we get in a situation where there's, there are charges that are filed because the parents object to what's going on? And the kids didn't think they were doing anything bad. But the parents want to make a judgment. Is, is, does that enter in the case a lot?
2: Absolutely. It's happened a lot because there is also a, a juvenile registry. And in fact, in, in the adult registry, it lists out certain times when juveniles have to continue to register um, once they reach past the age of 18. Um, but there is a juvenile registry that's not available to the public. Um, it is available to law enforcement, prosecutors and, and whatnot. Um, but if a, in that situation, a 16 and 15 year old and the parents of the 15 year old, uh, they, they want blood, you know, they want this guy's head on a platter. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I think those types of politics play into it and you will find cases where a juvenile has been adjudicated, not because there was any sort of lack of consent, as much as you can have, like you know, consent with with minors, but there's no force involved, and the other person was a willing participant, as was that minor because he was a minor himself. Um, and prosecutors in the juvenile courts are are cognizant of that, and it's the defense attorney's job to kind of try to point out to the judge, hey, you know, this is the situation, but if a crime is is brought by a prosecutor and there's evidence to support it that the sex occurred, um, then that's going to be problematic for that, for that juvenile for a long time, for a long time.
0: I was going to say, Bob and I over, uh, our years now have, be, be careful <laughs> <laughs> have observed, um, different legislative hearings here in Missouri where, um, I, I know that I recall, um, seeing families uh you know spouses who have been married for in some cases decades have children um who were in that kind of exact same scenario where one was convicted um or had to register adjudicated (laughs) maybe not convicted but ultimately had to register on the sex offender registry for um you know their their underage relationship and uh and one of the parents then was limited in being able to participate and see and support their children as they grew up in their school activities. Um, I know that several of those hearings uh, many years ago were because they wanted a way to get off the registry. Is I know we were talking about different tiers and that you could appeal and there are some exceptions, um, but can you walk us through... Can people be removed from the registry, and how does that work?
2: So that's a very good question because my answer would have been different as of two months ago. Um, And in 2018, we talked about the change in the law, and the state of Missouri did go to the tier system. And I noticed right away, and I actually talked to one of my colleagues about this, that the biggest issue that had come up since 2009 in Dovey Keithley was this what we called subsection seven of five, eight, nine point point four hundred, which is if you've ever had to register under federal law, then you have to register in the state of Missouri for life. So they went to this tier system. They spent hours and hours, heard all that testimony. I testified myself twice in front of, of, of the Missouri state legislature uh, joint sessions and. Um, and heard individual, I was probably there at that same one that you're talking about, where the, where the guy testified. It's like, look, I married the person that I, that was allegedly my victim, and we have kids, and we've been together for 15 years. And yeah. you know what 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 can be done here? And so when they went to that tier uh, system, the legislature forgot to take out that subsection seven. I noticed it right away. And I was like, well, it's not gone. It's still here. You know what's So I remember talking to, and that
0: subsection seven is the requirement that if you've registered. On the federal list, you have to register here for life. Yeah,
2: okay. it, it actually it says the case law in Dovi Keithley says that you have an independent obligation to register under federal law, and so because of that independent obligation, therefore, because there is no federal registry, you know, it, the feds rely on the state registry, so there is no separate like you you know you go to it and you're like here's the federal registry. No, it is you pled guilty in in Oklahoma. So therefore, you have to go register under Oklahoma laws you know, and under the Oklahoma registry. And so um, the, uh, the, the, the fact that subsection 7 wasn't taken out, which said that you have an independent obligation to register under federal law, and so therefore you have to register for life, Okay, that wasn't taken out. So he had he had all this hard work on these tier systems, saying you can get off at ten years, you can get off at twenty five years, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, and you can't get off at all because you're a tier three. Okay, but everything was going great, and the attorney general's office said, "We understand that that's there. We're just not going to enforce that." Okay, and they lived up to their word. They they were. OK, this guy's a Tier 1, hasn't had any problems. You file your petition that's required under 589.401 of all the components that you need to have in there. And the Missouri State Highway Patrol, they would just send in a letter. They wouldn't even show up, and they would just say, we have no objections. We have no objections to this one. Attorney General show up in court. We have really no objections. Maybe the last one or two questions, and judges were – I mean I was getting people off. I would say two to three people a month. My firm was getting people off the registry. I'm like, well, this is great. This is how it's supposed to be. But then the problem is there was a smaller jurisdiction in in uh, Western District of Missouri. We're a judge, and I can't blame the judge. He was like, well, I want to look at this statute, and he reads the statute, and he says, well, it says right here, you know, that they have they have to register if they've ever had to register under federal law, they have to register for life. And Dovi Keithley and Rapogel these are all telling me that. They have an independent obligation, and I'm not seeing anything that the legislature didn't take that out. There's no case law that's saying that that's no longer good case law, so therefore, no, I'm sorry. I know the, def- the, 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 the declaratory judgment you know petitioner is asking for it. I know that the attorney general's office isn't fighting it, nor is the local, but you know what? Sorry, guys. I can't go against what the statute says, so therefore, I'm going to deny it. So, therefore, then they took it up to the Western District of Missouri Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals said, Look, we have to follow what the law says. This is what it says. Then the Missouri Supreme Court said, We're not going to hear it. We're just going to follow what, what the Western District says. And so the attorney generals, after that, just it unraveled. You know, things started just going downhill. You're having fights on it. You know, hey, you know, you weren't fighting me on this, you know, last month, but now you are, and it's like, well, here's this case that says that, you know, we can't do that, and so then there was a, a set of cases that came up, and it, the name's escaping me, and I think it may be the Smith case, you know, that it's ultimately decided under, um, where the Missouri uh, Supreme Court then said, no, I'm sorry, you know, it, it says very specifically that. You know, it, you still have an independent obligation, and here's all the cases why, and the statute's still there, and so therefore the the only thing after the that 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 Supreme Court decision that would allow for the removal were the exemptions, which is dealing with the Rome, what we call the Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we are right now, and so immediately. I'm on the board of directors of the Missouri Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, so right away we talk to our lobbyist people and say, you know, can you start talking uh, to these legislatures and just just get rid of that subsection seven, you know, because if they get rid of that subsection seven, then we're going back to the tiers actually meaning something. Okay, you've done your ten years, file to get off. You've done your twenty five years, you've done it. Let's file and get off. That's why the Senate and, and the legislature took the time to do what they did. But my understanding is that there has not been any real movement on that. Mm-hmm. Everyone was behind these tears, but now the the problem is, is very clear. Address this, but it's not being
0: addressed. So for those who were removed in that what sounds like a brief window, um, are they impacted by this these later decisions that set precedent or are they – off
2: that is a great question and it's kind of like the the relative that nobody speaks of um, you know and it for me as a practitioner who has spent a lot of time you know on these declaratory judgments and, and getting in getting the people that the Missouri law says that they should get off I I'm, I'm white knuckling it a lot of times going because I just keep waiting to get that phone call from the person saying, Matt, you know, I thought you got me off, you know, and, and now I'm being told I have to get back on because that is what the situation was for years in Missouri before the Dovey Keithley case. Um, so from 95 to you know 2009, people were being told, and this is absolutely true, is that they would get a letter one year saying, congratulations, you're off the registry. And then six months later, get something that says, "Oh, I'm sorry, the law has changed, and now you have to come back and register." And then the next year, they would get another letter and says, "Hey, congratulations!" I mean, I have had people who have gotten off the registry three times, and being listed as exempt—that was the term that they used—that they were exempt. But then Dobie Keithley came out, and Judge Titleman said, "Nope, you know, if you have an independent obligation under federal, then you have, a, you have to register for life in Missouri." So I'm fearful that those. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people that we got off the registry um, are going to give me a call someday and say, I just got – I just was told that now I have to register again.
0: Are there any other areas of law that include a registration or a punishment that kind of does this teeter-tottering effect? Like it it seems almost like a a double jeopardy in, in some ways.
2: No way. I, there is nothing else in the state of Missouri that I've been aware of that you know something has been said where this is the law you have to follow it. Never mind, you don't. This is the law now you have to follow it. Never mind, you don't. I mean, there's nothing that I, I've been aware of at least. And as far as other registries go, there's a lot of non-public registries. But that's like if if a person is deemed you know by the Children's Division to be a perpetrator of abuse of neglect, okay. They're found themselves on a registry that's not public, but it is available to uh, nursing or uh, uh, medical field or child care fields. And so if your name is on that non-public list and you go for a child care job here in the state of Missouri, they're going to see that you're on that particular registry. And so therefore you can't get child You've care. you got a red
0: flag. Yeah, then. you
2: got a okay. red flag. Um, but that, I am not aware that there's been any teeter tiring on that. It's It's been – this this is – how it is, and it's been that way for a while. Um, but as far as the back and forth of the law here, I mean, it's it's unprecedented.
1: It sounds like the Charlie Brown effect. Lucy always grabs the football away. Good way to put it, yes. Yeah. Is there ever a time when the, the presumed victim sometime later could come back and say, I wasn't really a victim. This person shouldn't be on the list. Can the victim ever come back and basically personally exonerate someone and have that carry any legal weight for going forward?
2: So I can give you two situations uh, on that. And so um, if you are fortunate enough to have the victim, because I mean, they would be a victim at that time Mm -hmm. because they they were adjudicated, um, to come back and uh, provide some sort of testimony for the individual who is trying to get off. I have had that before, and it is it, it's worth its weight in gold as far as a hearing goes to get a person off. Um, that was before the current Missouri Supreme Court decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you have, you know, if it's not an exemption case, but they specifically fall under a tier three and that's what they play guilty to, and that's in the statute, even if you have that victim come back and say, Hey, look, you know it didn't really happen, or it's okay if it happened, or whatever. It's going to be the more hey, it never happened. That's going to be more helpful. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing that the judge that you're going to file the declaratory judgment that you can do because that's not their determination. Their determination is you were adjudicated, you fall under this statute. I'm sorry, you know, there's nothing I can do. But the other situation that I have have had happen. And we were all over the news for this uh, with an individual who allegedly had molested his three nephews. And then later on, the three nephews came forward and said it never happened, never, never did it. We took their deposition, found out that their social worker, uh, who about five years after – these nephews had made these allegations that my that my client had fought, always fought, mm-hmm. and then eventually entered into an Alford plea because it, it came into a situation where it's like, all right, well, do you want to go to prison for the rest of your life, or do you want to take an SIS Alfred plea where it's no conviction? You know, and the sex offender registry was not that big of an issue at that time, which later changed, and so his whole life changed. But um, found out that the social worker uh, was a pedophile and had pled guilty. To molesting numerous children um, and then has subsequently died. He passed away a couple of years after that. So we gathered up those depositions, the, the petition uh, to get a governor's pardon. And we have been waiting for quite some time to get an answer on that. But every time we talk to somebody in the governor's office or the probation officer who has investigated that, they're like, this is one of the best, you know, pardons we, you know, we requests we've ever seen before, you know. And the nephews are very active and saying, this never happened. We lied because we were coerced by the social worker who was apparently grooming them in the whole process. Um, and we still have not received a decision on that. And we've been waiting four years for that. And he is still registering.
1: And what kind of limits has he faced in his life because of that?
2: Numerous, numerous limitations. Um, Restrictions on on his businesses, what kind of licenses he can hold, Um, not only because of, you know, the, um, well, the registry, you know, primarily where he can live. He has children, you know, not Mm -hmm. being able to see his children, you know, go to their school plays, their school sports, Mm -hmm. because they go to a public school in a big school district that the superintendent's like – Absolutely not. No sex offender is ever going to step foot on our property.
0: I wanted to – we've talked a lot today about um, the perspective of those who are having to comply and register with the sex offender registry. Um, but I suspect that when you were in law school, you likely did not envision this type of work as being your your path and, and now your career. Um I know that you mentioned a little bit about your background earlier, but can you tell us how you got involved in these types of cases and why it's important that individuals have representation in these matters?
2: Absolutely. So I went to law school to be an FBI agent. Uh, that's what I wanted to <laughs> do, bar none. I, I was in the Marine Corps initially in the infantry. And then after 9-11, uh, I got into the Army JAG um, to because of 9-11, obviously. And so um, my path was never to say yes i want to you know represent sex offenders but what has happened is that sometimes you're catching an an individual on their worst day or they the romeo and juliet situation um have i represented individuals who were absolutely predators and did horrific things to numerous children i i have you know and I think this law addresses, you know, the registration law addresses each one of those types of individuals. You know, you have the Romeo and Juliet, you know, which have fallen into exemption. You have the individual who, um, you know, would fall into a tier one and as well as the tier threes, and, the, and they're going to be, you know, for life. But what's interesting though is when I was testifying in front of the Missouri you know, Senate and, and House for, uh, on this issue, uh, I was there with a prosecutor. And she is a prosecutor who's known to be one of the most strict prosecutors on sex offenses that you can imagine. It was a sweetheart of a lady, and we kind of came up through the years, and I, and I love her to death. But she is hardcore when it comes to sex offenses, as, as a prosecutor should be. Um, but she also felt that the offender registration laws were wrong. They were off. I have sat down and I've, I've talked to judges in uh, all jurisdictions, who have kind of scratched their head and say, "Like that, this these laws don't seem right." You know, how are we doing this to people? You know, they they did the crime, they did their time, um, and they don't even think that maybe that person should register, but the law says they do. Okay, they do, but it should be for ten years, and now we're taking that away from them as well. So, I think there are a lot of people on both the prosecutorial and, and the, um, the defense. And as well as the judiciary that have said, look, these are these are off. You know, these laws are are not what they should be. They they have morphed into something uh, that is more severe than they were ever meant to be. And don't get me wrong. There are those individuals where it should you know, they should be tier threes and they should be watched. And, you know, they are predators. And I had a federal judge, Judge Gene Hamilton, say to me one time uh, we were at a dinner and we're talking about child pornography cases, you know. And uh she said one of the hardest things to do is when you have a defendant standing at that podium on a child pornography case, and I'm looking at him, you know is it is somebody who looks at child pornography? are they somebody who's dipping their toe in the water of of molesting a child? you know are they you know one on the verge of of being a pedophile, and she goes, that's the biggest question. I don't know." You know, are they a true predator? or Are they somebody who just got addicted to, you know, pornography on the internet and just got sick of looking at certain things and started looking at everything else? And she goes, "That's what I don't know." So I try to take in all that information that the defense attorney gives me, and I look and I see, okay, what has this person done in their life? What what have they done to show me that they are not this type of person? But unfortunately, in the state of Missouri, with the registration laws and and what they pled guilty to. That's not even really a component. You know, it's you pled guilty to this, this is the tier that you're on, or this is what you're required to do as far as your registry goes. Um, so it's 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 a tough thing.
1: Is it because sex offenses are so, I guess personal that that we tend to look at them completely differently than we look at, as I started us program with fraud or other crimes? Is it the personal nature, the human type of thing that makes us look at sex offenses as so distinctly separate from all other parts of the law?
2: I think that any time that a person is a victim of a crime, there could always be some sort of residual effects that they have in their in their their mental health. Um, but a fraud, you know, someone steals a check from you mm-hmm. and writes it, you know, fraudulently, that's not going to, you know, hurt you mentally as much as, you know, somebody having shot you, you know, you're going to have some PTSD issues and whatnot. I think from my uh, work in, in, in the field and, you know, working at the prosecutorial level is that there are a lot of residual effects, a lot of, um, you know, I hate to use the word baggage, but I will will that a person carries with them for the rest of their life their inability to have a uh, you know a healthy relationship with a spouse um, because you know an individual may have been sexually abused by an uncle when they were a child. Um, so I think that especially when it comes to child sexual abuse, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to say one type of sex abuse or sexual assault is You know, less severe than the other, you know, but I'm just simply saying that a lot of times what we see is individuals who have been sexually abused as a child, that's something that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their lives and the problems that they're going to have. And so, therefore, not only are a lot of these offenses, you know, unclassified offenses, which means could be from five to life, 10 to life. You know, uh, if you're charged with two of them, you know, depending on the law, it may have to be stacked, meaning that, you know, it has to be 10 years plus 10 years consecutive without, without the possibility of probation or parole. You know, you have to serve 100 percent of them. So I think the legislature is showing us how these laws are to be treated. And, and the reason for that is probably because of the fact that they're what it does to the to the human mental health aspect.
1: The victim is a victim for a long time.
2: Yeah, even after, yeah, the...
1: as opposed to somebody who gets their money back from a fraudulent transaction,
2: and and that's brought up a lot of times in child pornography cases. You know, a person who was had pictures taken of them and posted on the internet. That every single time another defendant clicks on their on their page and sees that picture, then they are revictimized.
1: So that picture's on the internet forever. Forever. There's no way to take that picture off. You... So the the victim remains a victim for seventy five years that is correct, and that's why we make sexual offenses a separate thing mentally psychologically socially that is correct
3: yeah
0: is there any advice or when you get a phone call from potential clients saying I'm being investigated uh or i'm I've been charged um we've we've done you know other episodes where we talk about um, criminal uh Criminal trials and what are your rights when arrested? But um, are there suggestions that you have uh, to those who might be listening that if they ever encounter these types of charges or investigations that you would share with them?
2: Yeah, I think some of the hardest cases to defend on these um, is when an individual makes a statement to the police. Because so often, just dealing with the anatomical makeup of a child. A lot of times, signs of abuse are not shown, okay? They're not present. Uh, oftentimes, in rare occasions, I mean, I can even tell you maybe one or two of, of the hundreds and hundreds of cases I've, I've had of these where DNA is present, okay? Um, it's off, often just – and I'm just talking about child sexual abuse because you know it's what comes up most often, I think, in, in prosecutorial cases um, – is that uh, it's going to be the child's word versus the offender's word okay, or the alleged offender's word, and if the alleged offender does not make a statement to the police, it makes it a very difficult case to prosecute, just very difficult… If a six year old is talking about certain sexual activity, it's like, well, a six year old a should know about that. But versus a 15 year old starts talking about things, well, oftentimes they're a little bit more, you know, know the way of the world a little bit more and they'll have a little bit more knowledge. So it's not. So probably the number one thing to tell people on the defense side, you know, is, you know, don't make any statements. You know, talk to an attorney, you know, right away if, if the police are knocking down your door. Um, but on a, On a criminal defense side, if somebody calls you and says, I'm being investigated or I've been charged, it's important, I think, especially once a person has been charged, that you have to do some mitigation. You have to do some damage control. Okay, We often will tell our people, "Okay, I know you may not have done this, but we have to prepare for the possibility that we may have to negotiate this case later on with the prosecutor depending on the evidence. We just haven't seen it yet. Start going to a counselor, okay? But you can't talk about the offense because you're going to get hotlined if you start talking to a counselor about child sexual abuse. You can start talking to them about I have internet addiction, or you know I have a sex addiction, or something to that effect, and talk to them about that. Um, and then also to get a psychosexual evaluation um, by a, a a person who is approved by the Missouri Board of Probation and Parole. Just to have in your back pocket, okay? You also may want to look at the possibility of having your client take a private polygraph. If your client passes a private polygraph, then you may want to put that in front of the prosecutor and say, hey, look, why don't we have our, my guy go take a polygraph by your polygrapher and let's see how they do? And would you consider that as potentially a, a tool to use to, to decide not to charge my client or dismiss the charges or, or, or something else? So, st- strategy-wise, you know, looking at it as a defense attorney, um, post post-charge, and then what's the most important thing pre-charge?
1: But the prosecutor, the prosecutor is in, in a bad position too. If if the prosecutor has to tell a parent, now your child's lying. Uh, I have certain sympathy for what the prosecutor has to deal with too, from the, from that standpoint. You, how do you deal with that?
2: And that is hard. And, of course, you never want to tell the parent that their child's lying, of yeah. course. Yeah. But um, what you would probably want to do is talk about the difficulty of these types of cases and oftentimes what is necessary to prove a defendant beyond a reasonable doubt and show that you don't want to put the child uh, through something. Or even if it's an, an adult you know, victim as well, you don't want to put them through the trauma of depositions or hearings, uh, a trial in itself. Um, and so those are all things that if there is not a lot of evidence, you, and it's hard as a prosecutor to looking at a parent because a parent wants blood and rightfully so, mm-hmm. and to say, Hey, look, we just don't have enough here. Um, if we had this this and this then absolutely i would not have a problem doing that but we don't have that here you know and do we really want to put your your child or yourself through something that ultimately is is not going to come out in your favor and sometimes we're like well we want our day in court and it's like well i understand but i have a duty too that i can't go forward on things unless you know these certain things are met
0: Is there any um, advice or guidance when it comes to reporting? If someone has come forward to you and shared that they are a victim of some sort of sexual assault or sexual offense?
2: Um, It's difficult. Um, If an individual is unable, just physically and mentally unable to go report it, um, and so many of these offenses go unreported as we know, Uh, Seek out mental health. You know, do what is necessary in order to get a person in the right state of mind to be able to do that, okay? Sooner is always better because in those rare situations where there could be DNA, the last thing you want to do is to have an individual who has been sexually assaulted, you know, run home and, you know, take a shower and, and, you know, and scrub themselves, you know, clean because they just feel so dirty about being touched in that way. And it's understandable but it makes it very difficult for law enforcement to do their jobs if an individual has gotten rid of the of the crime scene because their body is the crime scene, um, and if they, you know, to to get their support system set up in such a way that it's going to make them strong enough to be able to tell, you know, their truth.
1: Other than Section Seven, what's the biggest weakness of our sexual offense laws? Do you think?
2: I don't. I'm not a big fan of that catch-all under the tier threes. I think uh, in my situation, it was in my client's situation, it was misused. Um, but I, I don't disagree with what the court of appeals said because it's in there. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that if they're going to mirror the federal system, uh, mirror it a little bit more, I, I think there's some offenses they have in there that they have improperly classified or made a little confusing or or delineated at a, at, a, at a certain age, that is a little little off. Um, I think that um, there needs to be an explanation as to what exactly is required under an exemption versus just a removal. Because under uh, 400.1, uh, 589.400.1, they have a list of what you have to have in your petition in order to be removed. But then there was a question that I just had in front of the Court of Appeals that even the Court of Appeals was scratching their heads where they were like, well, is that required as well under the exemption? Mm-hmm. And we were saying, no, it's not required under the exemption. This is what's required under the exemption. But the attorney general was kind of like, no, that this is required as well. And the Court of Appeals didn't decide that issue, but kind of punted it you know, on just saying, hey, you didn't preserve this, so therefore we find in favor of them. But – um, I think that needs to be spelled out a little bit more as well.
1: Is the ten year, fifteen year clear, clean record requirement practical?
2: I, I think it's practical. Mm-hmm. I think the federal system does a better job in determining what exactly um, is needed for the clean record re- re- reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certain things have to be met in order for that for that to happen. And Missouri, I mean, they still allow it and still and still do it in theory. Um, but I just think the feds kind of did a better job of spelling out what was needed for that clean record
1: reduction. Getting back to where we started. Yeah. Having, having a sex offender living down the street from you. What, what is the proper reaction to have if you find this out? What's the proper thing that I should do if I find out somebody three houses down has a sex, uh, is on a sex offender registry?
2: I think... As, as a parent, I have three children myself. As a parent, it would be very difficult, to, and, and being legally trained, I mean, we all love CaseNet in Missouri. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard not to love CaseNet. Yeah. Uh, and
0: expanded access to it now (laughs) we've done an episode on that
2: (laughs) so it would be very difficult not to take that individual and go to the you know if you go to the registry in Missouri State Highway Patrol and you map it I mean if you type in your address and you map it it will tell you 500 feet from where you live a thousand feet where you live and it's got little pins you know of, of, of where schools are where daycares are and where sex offenders live and so you just have to, you know, move your mouse over it, and boom, you know that that information comes up. And you know, it would be hard not to go to CaseNet and type in that person's name. And as a lawyer, we get to look at documents that a lot of people don't, and you be able to be able to see what their charges were. Um, but if you live pretty close to the individual, it may be the adult and responsible thing to do is maybe go talk to that person. You know, I, I think. That, I had I have a guy who has been president of his homeowners association for the last 10 plus years and his neighbors love him to death. But you know what? He's a tier 3 reg you know, having to register for, uh, as a tier 3 because when he was in his 20s and you know the person was young enough where mistake of age wasn't a defense because if they're under 16, you can't use mistake of age as a defense. And so therefore he's a tier 3 lifetime registrant. But his neighbors love him, you know, and they protect him. And whenever a new person moves into their neighborhood, they all meet with him, you know, with that with that new neighbor and say, Hey, look, that's the president of our homeowner association. We know that he's a registered sex offender. I invite you to go talk to him and go meet him and and he'll explain to him explain to you his situation and what happened. And he's never had a problem. Now he wants desperately to get off the list and I keep telling him I'm sorry, you're a tier three, there's nothing we can do. But you're lucky, and and it's not the norm for people to be that supportive. A lot of times it's the exact opposite. We were getting the the posters on the mailbox and the vandalism to their house and to their cars. I see that more often than anything else. Do they deserve it? I don't think any person deserves that. I think justice is doled out in, in the courts, not by any sort of person who just feels as if they want to inflict pain or punishment on that person.
1: Anything else we haven't touched on? Because we've touched on a whole bunch of stuff here today, Matt.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think we did. Um, and I'm looking forward to the time that the Missouri State Legislature fixes the issue with Subsection 7. And we can get back on track of getting those individuals who are allowed under the law to get off the registry. And we'll continue to do that. And looking forward to the governor's office doing something, too. We're open. Look at those pardons, yep.
0: We'll keep monitoring this, and if there are changes, we'll invite you back to provide an update.
2: Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Tremendous.
1: Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the
3: rights we have under it.
0: Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more.
3: One of the most significant cases to emerge on this issue was Smith versus Doe, a 2003 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1994, Alaska enacted the Sex Offender Registration Act, which required those convicted of sex crimes to register with law enforcement authorities. While information like fingerprints, driver's license, and medical records were kept confidential, much information was made public. Name, aliases, photograph, and physical description – license plate information, place of employment, the crime for which convicted, and length and conditions of their sentence. The law would be applicable to all those convicted of sex crimes, whether they committed their crimes before or after passage of the legislation. Two individuals challenged the application of this law to them. They both pled no contest to sexual abuse of a minor served their terms, and were released in 1990, four years before the law was enacted. Both completed rehabilitative programs for those convicted of sex offenses before the Act was passed. Although they were convicted before passage of the Act, the government argued that the two individuals, the plaintiffs in this case, were covered by the Act. The individuals brought suit contending, among other things, that the actions of the government violated the ex post facto clause of the Constitution. Ex post facto refers to a law that was passed after the commission of an act, which is applied retroactively to that act. This is usually seen as the zenith of unfairness, and that is why it is specifically banned by the Constitution. The individuals in this case saw their situation as involving an ex post facto situation. At the time they committed their crimes, there was no requirement of registering with the government. Thus, they argued, the attempt by the government to require them to register amounted to ex post facto and was prohibited by the Constitution. The federal district court ruled in favor of the government. The Court of Appeals ruled for the individuals. The case was accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court, which was asked to consider whether the registration requirement was a retroactive punishment prohibited by the ex post facto clause. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 in favor of the state of Alaska. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote for the court. He began his analysis by stating the key issue in the case, writing, If the intention of the legislature was to impose punishment, that ends the inquiry. If, however, the intention was to enact a regulatory scheme that is civil and non-punitive, We must further examine whether the statutory scheme is so punitive, either in purpose or effect, as to negate the state's intention to deem it civil. The state would not be allowed to go back and punish individuals retroactively, but the state would be able to develop a regulatory framework that would be applicable to individuals retroactively. To resolve this issue, contended Kennedy, the court had to look at the intention and the effect of the legislation. For Kennedy and the court, much reliance was placed on what the Alaska legislature said within the law. He wrote, here, the Alaska legislature expressed the objective of the law in the statutory text itself. The legislature found that sex offenders pose a high risk of reoffending." and identified protecting the public from sex offenders as the primary governmental interest of the law. The court saw the law not as punishing criminals, but as protecting society. This meant the court would move to the second part of the inquiry. What were the effects of this legislation? The individuals in this case argued that historically, actions like shaming, humiliation, and banishment were criminal punishments. They argued that the sex offender registry was very similar and should be seen as punishment. Kennedy disagreed, writing, The stigma of Alaska's Megan's Law results not from public display for ridicule and shaming, But from the dissemination of accurate information about a criminal record, most of which is already public, our system does not treat dissemination of truthful information in furtherance of a legitimate governmental objective as punishment. For Kennedy and the majority, providing information was not a criminal punishment, but a public service. The individuals also argued that the act subjected people to an affirmative disability or restraint, another indication of criminal punishment. Again, the court disagreed. Kennedy wrote that the act imposes no physical restraint and so does not resemble the punishment of imprisonment. The act does not restrain activities sex offenders may pursue but leaves them free to change jobs or residences. Similarly, the individuals argued that the registration system is like probation or supervised release, which are criminal punishments. Again, the court disagreed with Kennedy writing, Offenders subject to the Alaska statute are free to move where they wish and to live and work as other citizens with no supervision. Although registrants must inform the authorities after they change their facial features, borrow a car, or seek psychiatric treatment, they are not required to seek permission to do so. Finally, the court looked to whether the law had a rational connection to a non-punitive purpose. As Kennedy points out, As the Court of Appeals acknowledged, the act has a legitimate non-punitive purpose of public safety, which is advanced by alerting the public to the risk of sex offenders in their community. The court concluded, Our examination of the act's effects leads to the determination that the respondents cannot show that the effects of the law negate Alaska's intention to establish a civil regulatory scheme. The act is non-punitive, and its retroactive application does not violate the ex post facto clause. By enacting reporting requirements, states would not be punishing defendants again, but rather protecting the public. Justice John Paul Stevens wrote an opinion that agreed with the majority in part, but disagreed with it in other ways. Stevens was willing to recognize the constitutionality of registration for individuals convicted after the date of the passage of the Alaska statute. However, he was not willing to rule in favor of the state in this case under these circumstances. Stevens wrote, no matter how often the court may repeat and manipulate multi-factor tests that have been applied in wholly dissimilar cases involving only one or two of these aspects of these statutory sanctions, it will never persuade me that the registration and reporting obligations that are imposed on convicted sex offenders and on no one else as a result of their convictions, are not part of their punishment. In my opinion, a sanction that, one, is imposed on everyone who commits a criminal offense, two, is not imposed on anyone else, and three, severely impairs a person's liberty, is punishment. It is therefore clear to me that the Constitution prohibits the addition of these sanctions to the punishment of persons who were tried and convicted before the legislation was enacted. Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer went even further, calling into question the entire program of registration and reporting. Ginsburg wrote, The Act has a legitimate civil purpose, to promote public safety by alerting the public to potentially recidivist sex offenders in the community. But its scope notably exceeds this purpose. The Act applies to all convicted sex offenders without regard to their future dangerousness. And the duration of the reporting requirement is keyed not to any determination of a particular offender's risk of reoffending, but to whether the offense of conviction qualified as aggravated. Ginsburg went on to write, And meriting heaviest weight, in my judgment, the act makes no provision whatever for the possibility of rehabilitation. Offenders cannot shorten their registration or notification period, even on the clearest demonstration of rehabilitation. However plain it may be that a former sex offender currently poses no threat of recidivism, he will remain subject to long-term monitoring and inescapable humiliation. Despite Ginsburg's passionate dissents, This case conveyed a strong level of support for the registration of sex offenders, one that has grown stronger in the subsequent years. Today, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and John Paul Stevens are no longer on the court. For the future, it appears that sex offender registries will be considered a constitutional tool for public safety efforts to prevent these types of crime.
1: We want to thank all of you for being with us. We're glad we've been able to talk to Matt about this really high-powered emotional issue in our society today. Thank you for being with us, Matt. Thank you for having me.
0: There are some resources you might want to check out, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or are a survivor of domestic or sexual violence. The Missouri Bar Young Lawyers section, in fact, has partnered with the Missouri Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence to provide a resource booklet for those survivors with legal information and other details. You can find all that information at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find an array of information to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Nothing further.
1: You've been listening to Is It Legal Two, A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
0: And I'm Farah Fite.
1: Thanks for being with us.
0: Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.